And in a moment, Kate is going to read our, our Bible reading for this morning. So if you've got a Bible, um, perhaps you would turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. And we're going to be reading now from verse 8. And it's the story of the Shunammite's son restored to life. It's a lovely little encounter, but it's an encounter with the power of God in someone's life at a desperate time. So 2 Kings chapter 4, and Kate will be reading from verse 8. Thank you, Kate. One day, Elisha went to Shunem, and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put in it a bed and a table, a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. One day when Elisha came, he went up to his room and lay down there. He said to his servant, Gehazi, call the Shunammite. So he called her, and she stood before him. Elisha said to him, tell her, you have gone to all this trouble for us. Now what can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? She replied, I have a home among my own people. Well, what can be done for her, Elisha asked. Gehazi said, well, she has no son and her husband is old. Then Elisha said, call her. So he called her and she stood in the doorway. About this time next year, Elisha said, you will hold a son in your arms. Oh, no, my lord, she objected. Don't mislead your servant, O man of God. But the woman became pregnant, and the next year, about that same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha had told her. The child grew, and one day when he went out to his father, who was with the reapers, my head, my head, he said to his father. His father told a servant, carry him to his mother. After the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, then shut the door and went out. She called to her husband and said, Please send me one of the servants and a donkey so I can go to the man of God quickly and return. Why go to him today, he asked. It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. It's all right, she said. She saddled the donkey and said to her servant, Lead on, don't slow down for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant, Gehazi, look, there's the Shunammite. Run to meet her and ask her, are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? Everything is all right, she said. When she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. Gehazi came over to push her away, but the man of God said, 
Leave her alone. She is in bitter distress, but the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. Did I ask you for a son, my Lord? She said, didn't I tell you, don't raise my hopes? Elisha said to Gehazi, tuck your cloak into your belt. Take my staff in your hand and run. If you meet anyone, do not greet them. And if anyone greets you, do not answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. But the child's mother said, as surely as the Lord lives, and as you live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound or no response. So Gehazi went back to meet Elisha and told him, the boy has not awakened. When Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on his couch. He went in, shut the door on the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed and lay upon the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. As he stretched himself out upon him, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room, and then got onto the bed and stretched out upon him once more. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. And he did. When she came, he said, Take your son. She came in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground. Then she took her son and went out. Thank you, Kate. Before Phil comes to speak to us, let me just uh, pray for Phil and for us as we listen. Father God, we thank you that your word is a living word. We thank you that it speaks to our hearts. It can convict us and stir us. And we want to pray, Lord, that as Phil opens up your word now, you would help him and speak through him. And that we would not just be listeners of your word, but doers also. Help us, Lord, we pray. And bless Phil now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Dave, for leading our service so far. Now, a few years ago, um, I read a book called uh, An Autopsy of a Deceased Church. It it sounds quite grisly. Um, But basically, what the author had done was interviewed uh, hundreds of retired church leaders trying to find things in common that caused the churches they were in to decline. And the thrust of the book was really to help the reader see what sorts of things caused a church to lose its way. And it interestingly found obvious things, like when a church rarely prays together, or or, or when the church leaders lack purpose, or when the church becomes self-serving. Underneath it all, though, he, he kind of worked out that the common ground in all of these churches is that they forgot to keep the word of God central, and other things became more important than the word of God. Now, that was a really helpful book to read because it warned against apathy and encouraged the reader to learn from lessons of the past. And in many ways, the purpose of that book, Autopsy of a Deceased Church, is also the purpose of the books of One and Two Kings. Because they were written to exiles who were living 200 years after the events that we're reading about. And those exiles are faithful Israelites 
who had found themselves um, taken out of their country as slaves and exported to the country of Babylon. And there they were reading this book. Let's call it Autopsy of a Deceased Nation. The books of one and two kings. But, and you can, you, can, you can follow that thread, as Dan showed us at the very beginning. You can follow that thread, autopsy of uh, the, dece- the deceased nation, um, right through the book. And, and the, the fundamental cause of that, uh, that, that decline of Israel is Israel's attitude towards God's word. But chapter 4 presents a real kind of pause in that thread, if you like. And a contrast, because rather than continuing the story of how God's word was rejected by Israel and brought about their decline, chapter 4 tells an encouraging story of the few faithful Israelites who still listened to God. It's really encouraging, isn't it? How's that relevant to us? Why do we need it? Well, the Old Testament people of Israel, the faithful Old Testament people of Israel, who, who were reading this, parallel the faithful church today. So just like the faithful Old Testament people of Israel were a small group of people living in an increasingly godless nation, so too is the faithful church today finding itself standing out from an increasingly godless church. For example, one in three Church of England ministers do not believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. In this country and in the Western world, the prosperity gospel grows unchallenged. The Church of England has recently agreed to offer a gender reassignment christening service. The Methodist Church has last month voted to marry same-sex couples. And just like Old Testament Israel, the church today is in decline. Not because our world has gradually become hostile to Jesus' lordship. Let's be honest, the world has always been hostile to Jesus' lordship. No. The church today is in decline because the church is gradually becoming hostile to Jesus' lordship. In other words, the greatest problem in the church over the the past 40 years is that the church has stopped listening to God's word, and God's word is no longer the highest authority in many churches up and down the country. That's why the gospel is no longer proclaimed as widely and as faithfully as it once was. It's why the Bible's authority is being undermined in the church by political correctness and inclusivity. It's as though the church is saying, we don't want to say anything that is unpopular with our culture. So we'll dumb this down a bit and start talking the narrative of our culture. And that's why young people are no longer listening to the church because the church is saying, oh, I'm just going to say what culture says. And young people don't see a people of conviction, a people who stand by God's authority, even when it hurts. So we need this chapter. Because just as it encouraged the faithful Israelites in in exile to see even in the midst of a declining Israel, God's faithful people standing by God's word, so too it's an encouragement for faithful Christians today to see people doing the same, standing by God's word in tough times. And this passage has three things to say about faithfulness. 
And the first thing is this. Faithfulness is about seeking God's word when no one else is. Faithfulness is about seeking God's word when no one else is. So there's a subtle contrast in this passage uh, between this Shunammite woman that we're looking at and the woman we looked at last week. The widow from last week was materially poor, but spiritually speaking, she was quite rich. Uh, she, her, her husband was one of Elisha's faithful disciples. This Shunammite woman, on the other hand, lacks nothing materially. She's quite rich, but spiritually, she's starved of God's word and she longs to hear it. And we know that from verse 8 to 10. So I'll just read those to you. One day, Elisha went to Shunem and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he passed by, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know that this man uh, 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 who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put a bed in it and a table and a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay with us whenever he comes this way. Basically, one day she sees Elisha walking through the town and she takes up the opportunity to provide hospitality for him. And not just a one-off hospitality, but a regular hospitality. Basically saying, whenever you come this way, stay at our place. Why? Because she wants to hear the word of God. Now, we've got to remember, Elisha in those days was deeply unpopular. He really is. In, two, in, in chapter 3, basically he says to the kings, You're gonna, this is a bad idea to go to war against Moab. And they just go, <laughs> don't like you, thank you very much, go away. And, and basically, whatever he says, they don't listen to. He's a token of judgment. Wherever he goes, he's got bad things to say about a faithless Israel. And yet what she does is exactly the opposite of what Israel does. She welcomes him into her home. Why? Because he has the words of eternal life. He speaks the word of God. And she wants it in her home. She takes every opportunity. She she makes it impossible for Elisha to pass near Shunem without staying, basically. And notice she's not doing it for material reward. The story continues, continues to say how Elisha, Elisha offered to reciprocate her generosity. What, what, can, we, what can we do, uh, madam? Uh, interestingly, she's just unnamed. What can we do, madam? Uh, would you like me to talk to the king for you? Perhaps the commander of the army, you know? Station a few soldiers at your house so um, people don't, you know, so you feel a bit more secure. What can we do for you, madam? And she goes, no, 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 no. I, I, I love this. In other words, her reward is being able just to draw near to the living God of Israel through listening to the one who brings the word of God to her. It's phenomenal. And, and, and it's, it's wonderful because God, in his generosity, chooses to bless her further. Look at verse 14 with me. What can be done for her, Elisha asked. Gehazi said, she has no son and her husband is old. Then Elisha said, call her. So he called her and stood in the doorway. And she stood in the doorway. About this time next year, Elisha said, you will hold a son in your arms. 
Now, we have to be really careful as we apply this passage. You see, the prosperity gospel will argue that this passage teaches us that if we do God well, then God will give us stuff, material reward. And slightly more subtle as well is the damaging thinking where Christians will be tempted to ask, well, she was faithful and God gave her stuff. I'm faithful, why is God not giving me stuff? Can you see the danger of how we apply this? We, we, we can't apply it wrongly by, by simply translating her circumstances to our circumstances. In, in, instead, we need to work out what this teaches us about God's word. What does it teach? Look at verse 17 with me. But the woman became pregnant, and the next year, about the same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha had told her. Verse 17 is matter of fact. There's no drama, there's no hysteria. God's word said it, and it happened. Why would it not happen? And it mirrors the matter of factness of 2 Kings chapter um, uh, 1, verse 17. Let me read those verses to you. He, Elisha, Elijah, rather, he, Elijah, told the king, this is what the Lord says, I'll skip on a bit, because you have done this, you will never leave the bed you're lying on, you will certainly die. And then verse 17, and so he died, according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. It's matter of fact. It's kind of saying, duh, if God says, let there be light, it's not not going to happen. Do you get it? In other words, the, 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 the matter-of-factness of these two verses in tandem paralleling, uh, are paralleling a very basic gospel truth. If God's word says it, it will happen. You see, by mirroring these, by these two verses mirroring each other's tone, it hammers this point home. It's it's silly to think God's word is not powerful. Those guys would have been reading it in exile, and it would have struck them. Two verses saying exactly the same thing: God's word brings judgment, as God has promised through His word. God's word brings blessing as God has promised through his word. Which means that this book is not just advice. Please, if you're reading this for advice, just throw it away and go to the Quran because the Quran is advice. You've got five pillars of wisdom. You keep those... God will give you brownie points when you get to heaven. That's advice. This is not a bunch of morality plays like the Hindu scriptures, where there's just chaos of one God doing this and one God doing that, and no one knows what the gods want or what the gods don't want, but morally just be good and get good karma. This is God's word. Do you understand that actually when God spoke, when, when words came out of his mouth, he said, let there be light, and there was light. 
Let there be land and seas and birds of the air and fishes and creatures that walk on the land. Let it be so. And it was so. And therefore, as we read this word, it is the very source of life. Not just physical life, eternal life as well. This is not hocus pocus. This is not made up jiggery pokery. This is joy. And full revelation, God's word reveals God to us. When you read this, you read the very revelation of God himself. You can't avoid it. God's word reveals his love to us, his plans to us, his, 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 his future, his past, his present. By it, our lives are changed. I promise you, if you read this for half an hour a day, your life will be irrevocably changed. I promise it. And each of us who do that can testify to the power of God's word to do that. Our language will change. Our hearts will change. Our ambitions will change. Our eyes will be open to the glorious love of God, our need for a savior, for guidance. And he will lead us into tomorrow and teach us to learn from yesterday and to walk by God's grace in the present today. This is the word of God as God's word says it so it will happen. Therefore, it is the most powerful force at work in the universe today. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And the original readers would have been looking at their situation in, in their circumstances and reading this. They're reading it and they're saying, we're here, we are slaves in a foreign country. Because God's people refused to listen to God's word. And they would have been at a, a crossroads. Because on the one hand, as slaves in a foreign country, deliberately put there by God. God deliberately gave them into the hands of the Babylonians because they had so wandered from him. And here's their crossroads. crossroads. Look, is it, is it, do we just give up now? Shall we just blend in with pagans? Because God's abandoned us. And then they would have remembered God's word through God's prophets, like Jeremiah, Ezekiel. God's repeated words, oh guys, I love you, you're my people, I love you, I love you, I love you. By you I will bring a savior, I promise, says God to his people through the prophets. God's people in exile. I love you so much, says God, this exile will last 70 years. Learn from the past. Don't make the mistake in the present and the future. And there's that, there's that, that option. Do I walk away? Do I listen to God's word? And they would have read this story well, here's the hope. We may be in exile. But you know, even, even when God's people were rejecting God's word, God was still blessing the faithful. God was still working amongst those who really did truly stand on his word. And the encouragement for them would have been this. Those exiles, this would have been their encouragement. Don't give up on the promises of God. 
Don't give up reading his word. Put your soul, your heart, your joy, your everything into his word. Let it give you life. And isn't that, isn't that the same message for us in our context? You know, our challenge and our comfort is to mimic this woman's attitude, isn't it? She, she, she welcomed the word of God into her home. Psalm 1 says this, blessed, like this woman, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who, who, stands in, who doesn't stand in the, wicked, uh, in, the, in the way of sinners nor sits in the seats of, sco- of scoffers. In other words, blessed is a person who just doesn't follow in the ways of the world. But this is the point, blessed is the person who does delight in his law. Delight in his law. In other words, pick this up and go, oh, here is where my soul is truly satisfied. And on it, he meditates day and night. In other words, rather than the, 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 ambitious and the ambitions and the dreams that go round and round and round in our heads and the narratives that go round and round and round in our heads and the worries and the anxieties and, and, and the decisions we have to make, actually, no, 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 this is what goes round in the head of the person who is truly blessed. That's the promise of this woman. She welcomed the prophet into her home. The exile saw that. And took comfort. And I hope that we can do the same and take comfort in it too. I'm going to move on. Because the second thing that this passage teaches us is, about, is that the faithfulness is about reaching out to, to God in desperate time. Faithfulness is about reaching out to God in desperate time. So, so the writer of Two Kings just gives a very brief kind of summary of this boy's life. It's quite tragic. He grows up, and then something happens in his head. He gets a massive headache, and then the child dies. And what does the woman do? She runs to God, doesn't she? Verse 24. She goes after God, and and verse 27, she says, it says, and when she came to the mountain, to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. Gehazi came to push her away, but the man of God said, leave her alone, for she's in bitter distress. And she's not looking for a miracle. Isn't that interesting? Again, those of us who are prosperity gospel persuaded, she's not looking for a miracle. She's pouring out her heart in bitter distress. And, and it's not a fairy tale. It's gritty reality. It's, it's almost too much detail. It's almost too intimate, isn't it? And, and we find it in many of the Psalms, Psalms. Almost too much detail about the condition of the psalmist pouring out their heart to God. There's no crossness and there's no anger. She's not ranting. No, she's in bitter distress. It it hurts. She's lost in grief. She's reaching out to God for comfort and strength. And here's the point of sharing this. Her suffering would have been a touching point for those original readers. Reading this book in exile. They'd suffered massive loss, massive abuse. They were slaves in a foreign country, and she was teaching them that even the faithful people of God experienced deep, deep, deep loss and despair. It's not, it's not out of the ordinary. And yet what the faithful people of God in deep, deep despair do have is the comfort of God's word. 
That's why she runs to him. She runs to the, the comfort of God's word. And she can trust in God's sovereignty and what she knows about what God's word has taught her all those years. Sitting down, listening to Elisha talk about his God. And it helps us see how she models taking our grief and despair to God. And how much more do we need it today? It's been a horrible year, hasn't it? We've watched loved ones suffer from the effects of lockdown, from the uncertainty of the pandemic going forward. We've lost loved ones even. When we're in the depths of loss and grief and uncertainty and don't know where to turn to, this woman teaches us, doesn't she? Turn to the word of God. Be real. Pour out your heart to God. And let me also point out, there's no accidental relationship between those years of welcoming the presence of God's word in her house and her nearness to God in grief. Do you see the connection there you know, and, and let me be honest if you're not struggling now oh god bless you many of us are but if you're not struggling now then here's one very 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 practical application get ready for suffering it's going to happen you're not immune and you do that by immersing yourself in god's word in good times so that when difficult times come like this woman the first thing you do, your instinct in your grief and your suffering is to go in your bitter distress to the foot of the cross and pour out your heart in grief and loss and mourning and love and seek your comfort and, 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 and soul satisfaction there. Because that's the only place you will find it. You know, she... She, she, follows a, she, she, she provides a, a, a great pattern for us to follow. Those exiles would have seen it. Those faithful exiles would have known it in their grief, in their sorrow. And actually, for us today, isn't it, isn't it just a reminder, actually, of where our, our soul's anchor lies, the word of God? And listen, the third thing this passage teaches us is faithfulness is about looking to the future promises of God. The rest of the passage tells us how God brought the boy back to life. Look with me at verse 32. When Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on his couch. Um, he went in, shut the door on the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed and lay upon the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands, and he stretched himself out on the boy. Uh, as he stretched himself out of the boy, the boy's body grew warm and then uh, verse 35, Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room and then got on the bed and stretched out upon him once more. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite. And he did. When she came, he said, take your son. She came in, fell at his feet and bowed to the ground. Then she took her son and went out. It, look, there's, uh, you know, we could spend the next... Uh, three months unpacking uh, the, the riches of, of this passage, the riches that it teaches us about prayer and persistence and faithfulness. But the biggest thrust is that it stands as a promise to the reader. Uh, again, we've got to go to those exiles. And they, they were reading uh, the, the, about their, 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 their nation. 
that had declined and fallen. They were reading about their, their land that had come to an end, never to be rebuilt the same. And yet they still hoped. Their instinctive hope was that the future would get back to normal. They'd get back to the land, they'd get back to Jerusalem, they'd get back to a temple that they would build and get back to all the beautiful glories of, of, of what they'd, they'd read about in God's word, about the past. But God's message to those exiles here in raising this boy to life is this. You're looking for the restoration of Israel in the wrong place. The past was just a model just a foreshadowing of the ultimate kingdom that Jesus, my son, is going to bring about through his death and resurrection and return. The message to those exiles would be stop looking back and start looking forward to what lies beyond life. Start looking forward to the great resurrection when all the faithful children of Israel will be raised from the dead and into new life. Which means this, this, this miracle is a glimpse of God's ultimate blessing. A glimpse of his power to raise all people from the dead into a new creation and beyond this one. That's what resurrection miracles point to. And for us today, that's where our God in the Bible tells us he wants our hopes to be ultimately pinned. And yes, we've all got um, hopes in this life, and that's right. But let's be very clear. 99.99% of the blessings we have in Christ lie beyond this life. And those of us who are believers would all confess that we've barely begun to live with that as our mindset. We so easily listen to the voices of this world. We so easily put our, our, our hope and weights in this life, in stuff, in, in ambitions. And we're far too disappointed when they don't happen. But miracles like this remind us of the real reality beyond the grave. They really do. If we're trusting in Jesus this morning, the Bible tells us beyond a shadow of a doubt, as a certainty as tomorrow is Monday, Jesus is coming back and you and I will be raised from the dead bodily raised from the dead into new bodies and into a new eternity that shall never perish, spoil, or fade. Or fade. As certain as tomorrow is Monday, that will happen. And the world's going to dismiss that worldview. The world lives for today. But the fact of miracles like this one, the fact of Jesus' resurrection, tells us that we will raise from, rise from the dead and that his glory is real. So in the midst of our context, in the midst of a struggling Western church, we need to take comfort from this chapter in the midst of its context. This is a chapter about faithful people of Israel who refused to bow the knee to false gods, to political connect, correctness, to the, pres, to the pressure of culture. And they're under the radar. They're not talked about. Social media in those days would have ignored them or sidelined them, just like we are today. And this woman's one of them. But, you know, she's really, 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 really faithful. So faithful, in fact, Hebrews 11, 32 to 35, mentions her. And that chapter, Hebrews 11, is a great chapter. It's a whole list of faithful Israelites 
faithful people of God who clung to God's word in the midst of their circumstances. It says this about her. What more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life. There were others who were tortured refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. There is the point. There is the point. She teaches us about faithfulness. Faithfulness in the hope that one day our God will raise the dead to life. She teaches us about listening to God's word and not our culture. She teaches us to run to God and cry out to him in the midst of desperate times. She teaches us to take resurrection miracles as a token, as a glimpse, as a little hint, as an encouragement, as a reward, as a reminder. The great resurrection is coming. The great resurrection is coming, stop looking back. Start looking forward. Fill your soul with the promise. Because as this boy was resurrected, you and I will be. And there is our hope. Why? Because Christ was resurrected. And in him, that promise will be fulfilled when he returns. Brothers and sisters, isn't it wonderful she's unnamed? In other words, insignificant? We're insignificant, aren't we? There's another link. Just ordinary Joe Bloggses, we're going to wake up tomorrow morning, go to work or on holiday, some of us. But here's the reality. God's love and compassion and word is not above the insignificant. It's for the insignificant. And the insignificant, like you and I, have such hope, such access to the presence of God. We're not to dismiss it. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for all that you teach through your word this morning. Oh, Lord God, we confess to you that oh, we have such access to the power of the word of God because the word of God is in our hands. And Lord, we know that through history, those who have immersed themselves in your word have been used powerfully for your glory and found faith, found strength and comfort and joy and hope because of your word. I pray, Lord God, that we would delight in the law of the Lord and that we would meditate on your law day and night so that, Father, we would find ourselves like a tree planted by streams of water, that we would be fruitful, that we would not wither, 
Father God, I pray that we would, we would in our minds and in our hearts this, this morning commit to reading your word, welcoming it into our hearts so that we might find strength in difficult times and hope for future glory. We pray this in your name. Amen.